early Christians worshipped the way they knew best. And that is, as Jews who had now been transformed by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ into a new people. And one of the things that we can never forget the extras or? is that early Christians okay, here, I'll just take were the extras. Jewish Christians. No, no, we have plenty. And we must never forget that our Lord was a Jew. As I sometimes like to say, he was not a Christian. He was the Christ, the Messiah, who brought about in his own life, death, and resurrection, a new kingdom called the Christian Church. In Jewish worship, one of the most fundamental concepts is the concept of Seder. Now, many of you know that word, perhaps, from the Passover Seder. But the word Seder itself simply means order or structure. When Jews first used the word Seder, they used it to refer to the way in which God ordered his creation when he created it. God reached into nothing and he created order, Seder. And the book of Genesis is really a story of God's ordering the creation and then showing after the fall how through these, these, the loins of his people, he was giving them the place where he would send his son, the seed of the Messiah. The order, the Seder of Genesis, are those genealogies. These are the generations. These are the generations. These are the generations. Now, the word Seder came to mean order of service. The Passover Seder is the order of the Passover. We're going to look at that a little later. But I want to focus on this idea of order or structure. Worship has structure to it. And there are three different kinds of structure that we're going to be talking about. The first kind of structure is the one that we perhaps know the best. And that is the order or the structure of the church's right. By right, I mean the order of service. How the liturgy goes along. The way in which it flows. One important thing to know about the the liturgy of the, 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 the service, is that it grows as the church's life grows. It started out very simple. And as the church grew, and as it went into different periods of history, it began to grow up into a larger rite. Now, one of the reasons why it grew was another structure that we need to talk about, and that's the structure of space the place in which the liturgy grew. One thing that many people don't realize that in the early years, and I'm talking now about almost the first 300 years of the Christian church, the liturgy was in homes, in small spaces. And if you're in a small space, you don't have a lot of ceremony. You don't have a lot of movement. You have very simple liturgy. When the space grows, so grows the liturgy. And so the structure of the rite and the space in which that rite occurs are very important and go hand in hand. There is a third structure that is also very important, and that is the structure of time. Time. How do we structure our time in the Christian church? One thing that is very significant 
about the way Christians have structured time historically is that they began differently than they do now. In the early period of the church's life, there was no church here as we know it today. The important day for, for Christians was Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was considered by early Christians to be not only the first day of the week, but also to be the eighth day. Christians understood that God, in the beginning, created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh, which in the Old Testament was a day of worship. But when Jesus comes, the Lord of the Sabbath, he shows us that there's now going to be a new day of worship. Because if you're counting six days, Sabbath the seventh, the first day of the second week is really the eighth day. Now, I spoke of the baptismal font as being eight-sided because that was an eternal number. And early Christians understood that on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the eighth day, they entered now into the presence of Christ, which was an eternal presence. So in a sense, they entered into eternity. And they would speak, as we're going to speak later on, of how this was their entrance into the heavenly liturgy. Because the heavenly one, Jesus Christ, was there. Now these three structures, right, space, and time, were fundamental ways in which early Christians ordered their lives. And they are fundamental ways in which we order our life today. Think of it this way, that the structure of the right is the structure of the way in which we come together in the Gospel and the Lord's Supper to receive the gifts of God. The structure of the space is where we gather together as the Lord's body to receive these gifts. And the structure of time, Sunday, is the Lord's day, which is the day in which we, as the body of Christ, his church, come together to receive the gifts that come to us in the Gospel and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's body, and the Lord's day. These are three important structures that are part and parcel of the way in which we continue today to structure our life. We will also see, however, that we have a church here, which shows us that we have now available to us an opportunity to remember the Lord's life and the, 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 the church's life in a wonderful ordering of our time in terms of our year as well as our week. But because the church's right is perhaps the most central part of the liturgy, let's for a moment look at how that liturgy develops. Here you see an example of what is known as the historic liturgy. Take a look at number seven is where he's at. Number seven. The year 600. Notice that there are two squares here. A square for the word and a square for the sacrament. These are the two fundamental structures of the rite of the liturgy. And it is here that we see the two climaxes, 
of the liturgy. The reading of the Holy Gospel and the words of institution. Both of them are the words of Jesus. Where we say that our Lord is present in his word. Now there are three other structures here that are marked by circles. These are circular because they are times of movement. But it is interesting that it is during these times of movement that the church's song comes in. And it is here that we see what we call the ordinaries of the church are to be found. By ordinary, we mean those things in the liturgy besides the word and the sacrament that are ordinarily there every Sunday. That's number nine. And they are very simply the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Creed, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. <laughs> and as you can see from the dates there, they are very old. 4th century for the Kyrie and the Gloria, 11th century for the Creed, 2nd century for the Sanctus, and 6th century for the Agnus Dei. of the imperial period 
to the disintegration during the medieval period and then to restoration during the Reformation period. There was a period here during the age of pietism and rationalism where the liturgy also experienced a time of disintegration. But today, our liturgy reflects the liturgy of Luther and the Reformers, as well as the liturgy during this time of its richness in the imperial period. As we watch the development of these parts of the liturgy, we will see how, from the beginning to the end, the Lord is present among his people by means of this structure on this day in a space such as this. And that even though the liturgy goes through its periods of, of richness and disintegration, the Lord is still present because he has bound himself to the word and the sacrament. The presence of the Lord is what binds us together with all who have worshipped before. And one of the wonderful things about studying the Lord's liturgy is to recognize that in this rite that we gather around every Sunday, there is continuity with what has gone before. And I, per I, I think the best way to speak of that continuity is continuity with the saints, with those who have been joined with Christ by baptism as we have, and who have been nurtured in that life by hearing his word and receiving his sacrament. You could really listen to those kids all day, couldn't you? It's the, it's the children's choir at uh, St. Paul Lutheran in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, well, rather than just do those three questions, let's walk through the, uh, uh, the worksheet that we have here. He, it moves fast, so don't feel like you've got to catch everything as he goes through it, because we're going to review those worksheets as we get around to things. But, um, Ed, can you do me a favor? As you come in the door uh, around to the left here, uh, four and five, can you flip those on for me? So, uh, who learned something new today? <laughs> what, was, what was something new that, that stuck out in your mind as, uh, as he was racing through the, <laughs> the structures of the, the liturgy and its development? What were some things that you learned that were sort of new? I guess one of the things that is new but shouldn't be is that they, uh, early Christians, Jewish Christians, met in homes rather than religious structures. Yeah, the house church idea. Yeah, yeah, they, they worshipped where they had room and where what was available uh, to them at that point. That's right. For, at first, you look at the book of Acts, Paul and the, the apostles and everybody, they would go continuously to the synagogues um, because they didn't see themselves as starting something new, but as the fulfillment of what, what God had promised in the Old Testament. So they, they were continuing to worship with Christ as the fulfillment of those things, so it made sense for them to continue to go to synagogue to worship God because that's what they were still doing until the point where they could no longer worship in the synagogue because they were 
they were cast out from them and they would uh, be arrested and, and beaten and these things. And so they began setting up their structures in, in their own spaces at that time. Even Paul, when he arrives in various places during his journeys, goes to the synagogues to preach and teach there. Something else new that you learned that uh, sort of like, huh. I don't know if it's something new, but it's something put that I'd never heard before that um, Jesus was a Jew and not a Christian who was the Christ. You know, it's like we know that. Put it in a such, such a simplistic statement. Was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a funny way to, to talk about it. You know, it's like he wasn't a Christian. He was the Christ. And uh, they were Jewish Christians. And uh, sometimes I'll, I'll refer to the Old Testament Christians, which is another sort of like funny, way to, funny thing to hear is um, you look at Moses was an Old Testament Christian because his faith was in the promise of the Messiah. That's what his faith and confidence was in, just like ours is in our faith and confidence is in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we have... Um, just like Dr. Just kind of turned it around and said Jesus wasn't, you know, Jesus was Jewish. Not, a, you know, it's like, well, we also have the Old Testament Christians who had faith in the Christ. So yeah, it's very good. It's very good. John, you kind of, what do you think? Something, something you learned today? Yeah, I, okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, to say that I always uh, ah. kind of thought that uh, that was a renewal. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to live in the area, and we used to gather corn stalks for them because they would build the uh, outdoor on the patio. They would build the area for their stuff. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the word Seder, um, and, and you, you may never have heard of a Passover Seder, uh, but it's the right in particular to the Passover. There would be a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath Seder, and then there was the Passover Seder as well. The um, the, the Jewish word for the Passover time is actually Pascha. No, Pascha, P-A-C-H-A, uh, as in the Paschal lamb or as in the Paschal candle, things that point toward the, the, um, the Passover sacrifice. Our Paschal lamb is Jesus himself. So, that, so the Pascha Seder is the Passover order of things. And you're going to see in, in one of the future um, episodes where he, bring, he, he shows the, the structure of the Passover Seder in particular, how that is reflected then in our Lord's Supper Seder. Our Lord's Supper order is built off of the, uh, the Passover Seder in particular because that was the night that Jesus instituted it. That he, he was doing the Passover liturgy but he did it wrong in the sense he didn't do it in a way that pointed to something ahead. He did it in the way that pointed to himself fulfilling it. It's very interesting what, what you'll see in that. So, yeah. Well, under the kinds of structure, um, mm-hmm. the right, the space, the time, mm-hmm. on our altar, is that what that picture is going to show us? Up at the top there? No, at the bottom of the altar. It's got a, like, almost looks like a dollar sign. Or oh, oh, oh. Actually, that's, um, that's a good question. Um, the, at the center of our altar is actually three letters stacked on top of each other. And when you stack those on top of each other, then you get the I, the H, and the S. I was just informed I missed that. That's okay. No, that's all right. 
And, and that's, um, those are um, a monogram for Jesus okay. in, um, in with the, using the Greek letters. So that's where we that's okay. All right. Well, um, I think that's kind of a, a funny tongue-in-cheek sort of thing he begins with. You know, so where did we get the liturgy from? Did, did you know, the Holy Spirit, when he came out down on the day of Pentecost, you know, he, uh, we, we put red on the, on the altar for Pentecost because he brought TLH down. <laughs> you know, the, the, the old red hymnal and things. And uh, um, so where did the liturgy come from? Yeah, they worshipped as they thought best. They they took what they were already doing in the in the Sabbath um, uh, synagogue worship, and they adjusted it to point to the Christ who had come, rather than the Christ who would come. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, and early Christians were Jewish Christians, not a Christian, but the Christ, the Savior of the whole world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a very interesting question. If they were going to the synagogue and meeting and talking to the people who were there, that was clearly going to be on a Saturday because that's was, that was the, the synagogue day of gathering was going to be on Saturdays. However, um, the Christian gatherings in the homes was also very early um, because, well, you think about it. What day did Jesus rise? Sunday. That night you got to think back to, to John chapter 21 here on the very first day. That night, they, all the disciples were gathered in that upper room, right? Probably the very same upper room, likely, that they had the Lord's Supper a few nights before. They got the room rented out already kind of thing. Let's, where are we going to go? Let's go somewhere where we know, where we've been, where we can say back to that place. It kind of becomes a home base of sorts. There's actually some um, evidence to show that there's a, uh, uh, John Mark, um, not necessarily the Mark of um, uh, Mark the Gospel writer, but John Mark is. We see his name in the Book of Acts. It may have been his home that that we he becomes a Christian later on and a player and an accompaniment to Paul. But um, they're gathered there on Sunday, and who shows up? Jesus shows up. Well, but Thomas wasn't with them. Well, eight days later. It says eight days, too, because it's, so it's one week later. Same day of the week, but one week later. Um, where are they again? They're in the same place, and they're all together again. Because, well, hey, if we're all together and Jesus shows up, let's do that again. <laughs> so they did again. And we see that happening again and again, that, that perhaps as early as basically right away when they start seeing, wow, this is the day Jesus rose. He's appearing to us. We gather together on this day, uh, pretty, pretty early on, actually. The concept of eighth day also plays into the, to the eight sides of our font, um, in addition to the, uh, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, Denise. Now, if we talk about Sunday as the first day, It puts it in reference to all seven days, right? You know, so the first day means there's going to be a, a second and a third and a, and a fourth and things like that. If we call it the eighth day, however, 
we call it the eighth day, we know, we know there's seven days in the week, right? And so we know an eighth day actually puts it in reference not to all the other days, but if we say the eighth day, it actually connects its reference back to, to the first day. It, it actually heightens the emphasis on that first day, the day of new creation, the day of resurrection. So to call it the eighth day, and that's what Dr. Just is going to focus on, he'll talk about the eighth day quite a bit, actually. It, it heightens the focus on the first day, Sunday. The first day of God's creating, the day when Christ rose from the dead, the day of new creation and eternal new life. So, you know, we do worship on the first day of the week. Yes, it's Sunday, but by calling it the eighth day, it, it, um, it heightens the fact that you know, this is the Sunday, not just any day, but it's Sunday, the day the Lord rose from the dead. So that's, the, that's, the, that's another aspect when you look at the font and you see those eight sides. You can say, this is the eighth day. This is the, the day of new creation. He started creating on the first day to seven, he rested, and on the eighth day, a new week, a new thing, a new creation, a new thing he does in the resurrection. Um. We need to look up a couple Bible verses here. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Volunteer, raise your hand. Jeannie, can you go there? Mark 10, 45. I need a Luke 12, 37. Uh, Dean's got Luke 12, 37. Diane, can you do 12, uh, Luke 22, 27? And can you do um, John 13? 4 and 5, and then 12 through 15. I'll let you do both of those. All right, as you read these, think, all right, how, do, how would these inform the way we understand our worship and what the Lord is doing? Go ahead, start with Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so how would those words from Jesus inform how they worship? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and so when they gather on worship, it's to do, it's for what? To be served by Christ. We don't come to worship to serve him. The Son of Man did not come to be served. Jesus wasn't there to say, hey, I'm here, um, you know, do for me, but rather, I'm here to do for you. And that's, that's why we worship, to receive God's gifts. Jim. Absolutely, absolutely. And having received those gifts, we certainly respond, right? If you're going to breathe in, you also will breathe out. Well, that's just like the Sunday school Bible class. Mm -hmm. Giving back to serving each other and learning, right? Yeah, absolutely. We see that in, in the study of God's Word. In, um, well, and even in the prayers and praises that we bring in the divine service itself, even, are the response to the gifts that Christ is giving. It's, it's, it's a constant giving and receiving throughout the service. Uh, Luke 12. Uh, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Wow. When the master comes, the servants are going to recline at the table? He's going to serve you? That's totally backwards in their minds. It would be totally backwards in their minds. It would be like, 
uh, going to a state dinner and finding the governor in the kitchen. Just that's not what you would expect. Not at all. Not at all. You know, you hear that exact you hear that exact action in in that in those words of Jesus that you know when he, when he comes he'll have them recline at the table and he will serve them. That's exactly what he does at the Last Supper. You know, um, yeah. Luke doesn't record the washing of their feet, but he's got this in there, so it's like, oh, maybe he does. <laughs> um, Twenty-two, twenty-seven, Diane. Isn't that interesting? Who's the greater one? The one who's at the table. And he's already taught us that in the heavenly banquet, who's the one at the table? We are. We are. How miraculous is that? We, you know, we think we go to heaven to, you know, to, be the, to be the starstruck spectators in God's presence. But rather, when we, when we arrive in heaven, when we join in the eternal banquet here in the Lord's Supper, who's, who's really, you know, he comes to serve us you know he's overjoyed that we're there so that he can give us the gifts isn't that, isn't that it's kind of humbling all of a sudden it's kind of like you know you, you go to somebody's uh you invite somebody over to your house and and they do all the work <laughs> it's like that's weird but you know it's kind of neat and then uh, john 13 then got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. Nope. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And that's exactly what we were talking about. You know, we come to the, you know, when we, when we come to this table, when we come to the worship of, um, the, to the divine service, it is Christ who empties himself, humbles himself to serve, to serve us. Man, what a great joy that is. <laughs> it's pretty That good. brings to mind, we think, we go to church, we're serving God, we're praising and giving him thanks. Yeah. What he has to give us. Yeah, it's not even almost opposite, Jim. It it is. <laughs> it is exactly that, that. That we come to receive God's gifts. And see how we we, we assume the posture, a receptive posture, um, in the Lord's Supper. We kneel. And it is given. You know, it's given to you. Um, some people when they out of their own personal devotion, um, Will will receive it directly into their mouth, rather than into their hand, and then because they want to to sort of emphasize it's it's a devotional thing, it's something they can choose to do, but it's that that passivity of being fed, of receiving in that. You know, um, there was probably a time maybe when um, you know we would we would come to worship, we would confess our sins, and we would kneel when we would even confess our sins and things. Um, you know, that's that's good, right, and salutary. Is that is that posture of receiving, and uh, that's great. And actually, changes the mind. That's how we used to do it here yeah, years we did, ago. We always did it that way. They Pastor Borowski always put it right directly in the 
Oh, really? Sure, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It you know it goes either way. There was a time when it became a requirement. Um, the the Roman Church actually required people to receive it in the mouth is because of superstition that had crept in about what about about the host itself, about the body of Christ that they were receiving. People, if they would receive it in their hand, sometimes they would palm it because now I got a piece of Jesus. That's going to bring me good luck. You know, seriously, I mean, this was, and that was actually reinforced by, by the practices of, um, of, of adoring the host itself um, in festivals like Corpus Christi, the Corpus Christi Festival. They take a consecrated host, they put it in this big structure, and you parade it around. It, it, it really becomes an idolatrous kind of thing because you're worshiping the thing instead of the Christ. Yeah, this thing brings me good luck. I will have good fortune because I have this communion bread in my pocket or with me. And that kind of superstition, it becomes, it's idolatrous. It's the kind of reasons why they, they destroyed the bronze serpent, why they, they destroyed these things that had become idols for the people of Israel. We have to be careful it has not become an idol for us, for us either. Um, I was going to say, probably, you'd have, if, you, if you go back to before maybe one edition or something, before new pews were put in or something, there could very well have been kneelers, yeah. yeah. We had kneelers, but we turned around and faced the pews. That's so funny, because I was just about to say, there were some churches, if they didn't have kneelers. Yeah, you just turned around and Isn't that interesting? I've heard, of, I've heard of churches doing that, yeah. Yeah. So there was this sort of this tension between, you know, we, the posture of repentance, which is kneeling, and being able to face the right way. What do we do? I'm, I'm sort of glad that what's won out is, you know, we, 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 you know, standing is also a posture of respect. Also, you know, somebody important walks in the room, you stand. You know, a lady comes to the table, you stand, right? You know, all the kids have forgotten about what that is anymore. Chival you know, chivalry is, <laughs> chivalry may be dead, but, you know. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm surrounded. <laughs> I think I'm starting a men's group. <laughs> Reinforcements. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they hold no sway. Uh, yeah, exactly right. All right, um, we talked about a few of these. Number four, the term Seder means the, the right or the order structure. Yep. And you talked about three structures. Uh, the right is the order. the order of the liturgy. Yeah. Um, the way in which we come together to receive the eternal gifts of God. And he sums it up as it being the Lord's Supper. The whole thing is the order of God's meal. So why did it begin so simply? Yep, that's it's what they knew. They they worshipped as as was best, and also where did they do it? In a small space. Yeah, it might not have been any bigger than than what we're seeing right here. Um, 
he, he gave a, a, a diagram of a, of a church that they've um, archaeologically uncovered. And the, the, the homes were very, very simply, um, you'd have the shops in the front of the house, on, you know, on the street side. So here's the street. And in the center would be a courtyard of sorts. And that was partially to, to let in light. They would have windows um, here and here to, to let light into these places. When we were in Columbia, uh, we saw lots of homes that were built in that way, that they would have these sort of center um, atrium kind of areas. And, you know, if you get the right kind of climate, it works out great, you know. So then they would have rooms, you know, portioned off from this, and they would take one large room, would be where they would worship, would be here, and then the people maybe would live on the second floor or something like that. So, you know, I would say a room this size would actually be considerably large for, for a gathering like that. So, so when did, it, when did the, the, um, the rite, the structure of the liturgy, become more complex as what happened? As the space grew larger, as the, as the number of people present became larger, you, the more people you have, the more stuff you got going on, the more room you have to fill, you have to get from place to place, the more structure you need to be able to do it in a way that everybody can follow along. Space. Space is the, the location of the liturgy, the, the place in which we come together to receive the eternal gifts of God. And, he, and Dr. Just sums it up as the Lord's, the Lord's house, yep, or even the Lord's body, and we are the body of we are the body of Christ. And time is the the day of the liturgy, the day on which we come together to receive God's gifts. We talked about the Sabbath day and uh, Sunday becoming the the important day. The church year. I don't know if he exactly covered this or not, but the church year allows us to continuously to remember God's promise. Well, let's see. If the, the church year begins, uh, what season? With what season? Advent. So that's God's promise to send the Savior. Then it's Christmas, the Savior's birth. Now we're in the season of? Epiphany so far. Hang on. Uh, so the Savior's epiphany. Then comes Lent. So the Savior's suffering. Then comes Easter, the Savior's resurrection. Then 40 days after Easter is Ascension, the Savior's ascension. And finally, the Savior's promise to return again, the season of Pentecost to the last Sundays of the church year. And we go all around. We keep going around and around. This was one of the things we taught when I went over to uh, West Africa, to Liberia, to teach them about the church year structure, how it, how it follows the life of Christ and the life of the church and the readings that we have for each day of the year and things. And they had sort of a sense of that. You know, they knew seasons of the year. You know, we knew Christmas was a time, Easter was a time, but they didn't have a good sense for, for all those details that went in between or the readings that were appointed either in a three-year cycle or a one-year cycle. And we handed this out to them, showing, showing them, you know, well, here's the three years' worth of readings and the dates for them and things. And they were looking at them. They were like, do you use this? And I said, well, yes. This is where I get, you know, this is what I preach on in the week and things. And he said, 
One of them was just like, so you're telling me on any particular Sunday in here, what we're doing in West Africa is what you're going to be doing in America? Well, yeah. Yeah, well, no, that's not where the timeline is. About, about six hours earlier, though. <laughs> um, I said, well, yeah. And they just had this big smile on their face, and they said, we are together. They had this sense of, of the body of Christ that they had never thought of before. They said, we're hearing the same words from the scriptures. You know, we're connected in this way that we never even thought about. Oh, they were so excited. Oh, it kind of gives me chills talking about it again. It was so neat to see their faces with it. So... What are the two fundamental structures of the liturgy? Word and sacrament. And then what's the climax of the service of the word? The reading of the gospel. What's the climax of the service of the sacrament? The words of institution. And why are those most, most important? The very words of Jesus. Yeah, they're both the gospel itself. Christ coming to us. Yep. We talked about three uh, times of, of motion, of movement that came around. Um, what did he identify those as? First, you had the entry, then the preparation. And we, we sort of have these now, don't we? Yeah. And then finally, the distribution. Yep. Yeah, the preparation we have now is really the time when we, we gather the offering of the church. And what do I do up at the altar? I, I prepare the altar. I make that ready. And so there's sort of this, for me as a pastor even, it's sort of, you know, we get a little breather in the middle there. You know, kind of like, okay, we've you know, we got to get reset for everything now. Okay, now we've got service of the sacrament. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you open the you open the hymnal up. The first page is uh, services uh, is prayers when you come into church, before you receive the sacrament, after you receive the sacrament, and yeah. these things. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll take a look at our hymnal itself and and it as a resource. Um, the more we learn about the various structures and things, because it's uh, tremendous help. Yeah. What did they um, now during these times of movement is when they introduced. Um, what was introduced into the life of the church then? The, the, the or, it calls them the ordinaries, or the church's time of song, times of singing, ordinaries. And ordinary just means it's, it's the same every week. It's, it ordinarily occurs. The sort of the... The flip side of that coin would be a proper. Things that change from week to week or are, are appointed for a different week. Um, a proper would be the readings. The readings are appointed for each week and they are different from week to week. That is the, the propers for the day. The collect of the day, that first prayer I pray after the, um, the Kyrie, the glory and excelsis, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, let us pray the collect of the day. That changes from week to week, and it's appointed for that particular day of the church year. The ordinaries, on the other hand, are the same words from week to week throughout our, um, throughout our order, throughout our life of worship. And they are the what? Kyrie, the glory and excelsis, the creed, 
Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. So Lord have mercy, glory to God in the highest, I believe in God the Father, um, holy, 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 and Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interestingly, most of those show up right away in uh, um, the, the, the first two, the Kyrie and the Glory, and a lot of these other songs show up right at the beginning of, the, of Luke's Gospel. Um, we talked a little bit about that during our study of the um, Nativity story. He said the creed was the 11th century. That's, that's the Nicene Creed um, being sort of written and, and put into form. The creed as part of the weekly worship was from the very beginning. The, the, the Jews, as part of their synagogue worship, set a creed um, as, during the readings. And their creed was very simple. It was called the Shema, and it was the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's from uh, Deuteronomy. That was their creed. And so they had a creed very early on that it looks very much like the Apostles' Creed, actually. It's called the Romana, and we saw it pretty early on. All right, um, various periods of worship. The domestic period, worship took place in homes. The imperial period developed to be known as the historic liturgy as the space of worship grew. And during the medieval period, the worship liturgy became even more complex. Yep. And so the way we worship today is simply the historic liturgy expressed in a Lutheran way. You know, when, when Luther reformed the liturgy, he took out the things that had disintegrated in the liturgy, that had become superstition, that had become added from outside of Scripture, and actually weren't just simply from outside of Scripture, but worked against the gospel. Uh, the, the, the words, the language of works and of... Um, of um, enacting sacrifice and things like that. So he took those out. He was restoring those aspects of it. That was the Lutheran way to, to express it. Um, number 12, domestic period was a time of simplicity. Imperial was a time of richness or of development, I think when a lot of things were growing in the liturgy. The medieval period was a time when it Disintegrate, yeah, it really started falling apart. The Reformation became a time of restoration. Now, two words here, pietism and rationalism. We haven't talked about what those words are really, but that was like from the 1600s to about the 1900s, period of pietism and rationalism, where again, the liturgy began to disintegrate. It began falling apart again with revivalism and needing to come to, work, come to God's house and have faith excited out of you, and there would be things done to elicit emotional responses that they attributed to the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is first understood as, as being a mark of the church and things. This was a time when the liturgy began to disintegrate, and people were moving away from the use of the liturgy. Rationalism is uh, like the great... the. Um, the um, Enlightenment and uh, the Great Awakenings, times when everything had to be explainable. And so the miracles of Jesus had to be explainable. That's why you have like Thomas Jefferson, the Jeffersonian Bible. He took the Bible and he said, well, I'm just going to take out what is irrational or unexplainable. And so he literally, he literally cut it out. <laughs> you, there's a, if you ever see a, a Jeffersonian Bible, it's missing chunks. 
of things. Very little of it is left because he says, if, if I can't explain, if it's not scientifically provable, throw it out. Um, and then Lutheranism of today is another time of litur liturgical restoration or renewal. We're back to the historic liturgy expressed in a Lutheran way more now than, than we have in centuries, really. Uh, though the liturgy has changed over the years, the Lord has remained present in his word and sacrament. That's right. And the Lutheran liturgy is really a liturgy of, of continuity. It's one that, that connects us to our Lord and to, to those who have worshipped, who have come before us and who will come after us. I mean, it's not our liturgy. You know, it belongs first to the Lord because it's his gifts being brought to us. And secondly, it belongs to, to the whole church. It's, you know... Yeah, we're connected. Yeah, there's a continuity there. Yeah, we're, you know, we owe it to our Liberian brothers and sisters to remain connected to them and, and to the whole church throughout the ages. Yeah, there's a lot to that. All right, well, another great, uh, boy, just lots of fun talking with you guys. Night, neat hearing, seeing your eyes and your faces as you're sort of like the lights are going off. And it's like, man, we use this. Mm -hmm. got to replay that one. <laughs> the lights, yeah, it's nice seeing the lights come on, and it's really, it's really wonderful. So, I do. So drive home safely. Be, be safe on the roads. God's blessings to you, and uh, we'll see you next time.